All right, Forge family. Uh, today we're going to start our, our study in 1 Timothy. Last week we did the introduction, and this will be carried through a little bit. Uh, this young man, whose name means he who honors God, had uh, been with the Apostle Paul for 12, 13 years. <clears throat> and he walked thousands of miles back and forth across Asia Minor and been aboard ship with, with Paul for thousands of not leagues, whatever they, however they measure, you know, distance on shipboard uh, with the Apostle Paul, thousands of those. Uh, he'd been with Paul through riots and imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks and times of hunger and sickness, but had proven himself a faithful partner in the ministry of the gospel. He'd often been sent with Paul's letters, and we read about that in First Thessalonians. And, uh, and when Paul was released from Rome, first thing Paul did, you know, after the house arrest, us, he handed his letter, to a dictated letter to Timothy, and he said, take that to Philippi. So this was something that Timothy did. And so he would arrive, and he, would in, he, would, he was there to take the pulse of those congregations, and he was there to, um, to teach and to correct new believers in Christ. So in A.D. 62... This personal letter we know as 1 Timothy arrived, having been sent from Macedonia, where Paul, Paul left Timothy. Actually, the word that's used in the text is he, he strongly urged him. He pled with him. He, it wasn't just, oh, if you want to do this, you can do this. It was, it was a strong thing for Timothy to be told, you stay behind, and I'm going to go on to Macedonia. But then Paul turns around and sends him a letter. And uh, he, he knows what's coming to this young man who is going to pastor a collection of house churches in the city of Ephesus. So let's pray. Father, you who give us assignments in life, we would be those who stand up and trust you to make us adequate for all the demands. Fill us again, Holy Spirit, as we look to this passage. So come in, Holy Spirit, come in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins this epistle, classic first century form. You know, you, the, the, the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and then the greeting that follows. That sort of falls through into 21st century in some senses, you know, on, on at least business, business form. You know, you, you put up the, you know, the name of the sender, and then the next is the date, and then et cetera. So, Okay. <clears throat> And in verse 1, he launches us, okay? Quote, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God as Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. So this is, this is Paul writing. He was born Saul of Tarsus. Uh, we believe him to have been the son of the chief rabbi of Tarsus. He was taught by Gamaliel, who was the lead Jewish trainer, teacher in Jerusalem. Paul became a Pharisee. You can't do that unless you're married. So at one time, Paul was a married man. But we don't know the outcome of that. Okay? He became a Pharisee. But then he became a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a murderer of those who followed the teachings of Jesus in Nazareth. And that was Christ who has risen to sit at the right hand of the Father as the Messiah. <clears throat> Paul's 
conversion on the Damascus Road was a shock to this man because he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was a fraud. Years pass. He spends it in the northern section of the Arabian Desert. Uh, Some say making tents and some say making really exquisite saddles and leather goods and tack. And then Barnabas seeks him out and brings him along to Antioch. Antioch is on the north coast of Syria. And uh, rapidly, Paul becomes one of the teaching team. There's, I think, a half a dozen listed in, in Acts chapter 13. And then, by Holy Spirit, he is launched with Barnabas to be a traveling missionary. Hands laid on by Holy Spirit and sent out and, um, and they begin their travels, and it is only after his confrontation with Elamus, the magician in the court, pretty uh, court or, or uh, whatever, within the power base, wherever the, those big meetings were held by the proconsul, the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus on Cyprus. Only after he confronted that magician did Saul of Tarsus become Paul. His ministry was being shaped as he ministered to Gentiles. The text of verse 1 speaks of Paul being under the command of God and Christ Jesus to be an apostle. So Paul points out that uh, he's been chosen out to be God's representative to bear the message of the risen Christ to the Gentiles. And under, under the authority of Lord God and Christ Jesus, and the power of Holy Spirit, he began to lay those foundations of seeing the Gentiles flood to the gospel of the risen Messiah. Additionally here, God is spoken of as Savior. That appears other places in the New Testament. It's not a common thing for Paul to use it that way. But it certainly extends the theme of of Yahweh who desires from Old Testament days right into the New Testament to see all come and bow before him and trust in him. You know, ultimately, Yahweh is Savior. Now, you know, others use that term, Savior. Nero used the term, was called Savior, because the cult of worshiping the Roman emperor was being spread across the Mediterranean and the the Roman Empire. To believers in Christ, the word Savior is a powerful, means, you know, that I, if he's my Savior, I have a powerful deliverer. In the same, in the same verse, the last phrase in verse 1, Jesus is written of as our hope. Now this adds up an eschatological element, an end times reference to match to the promised and prophesied return of Christ for the faithful and to once and for all sweep all wickedness and sin away. Now with that big picture set out in front, Paul writes to Timothy and reminds him to continue to hope in Christ Jesus. Now next in verse 2, Paul finished the address of the letter. It is sent to this, quote, one who honors God, who is Paul's personal representative in the church of Ephesus. Now, Paul had been there on his third missionary journey. He'd spent two years 
First he went to the synagogues, and they, they weren't buying it. They weren't having any of Jesus as the risen Messiah. So he withdrew, and with him came some new believers out of the synagogues. And then Paul set up a teaching center in the school of Tyrannus. And for two years, he, he taught and prayed and laid on hands. And, you know, uh, he saw his disciples leave from Ephesus and go to the far corners of Asia Minor. So the whole of that block of land, all those nations heard the message of Christ within two years. So when, with Paul absent, you know, Paul needed to be sure to leave someone in Ephesus who had Paul's stamp of approval. And Paul then lavishes his love on Timothy as my true child in the faith. So while Paul cannot claim that he led Timothy to the Lord, when he came through, through Lystra the first time, the seeds were planted, and Timothy's mother, Eunice, and grandmother, Lois, got it. And it got transmitted to Timothy. So when Paul comes back, here's this young man, probably 15, 16, maybe, um, who is well spoken of inside the ecclesia, inside the church in Lystra. And uh, with the, the recommendations of their leadership, Paul takes Timothy into the ministry team, the missions team. That starts in A.D. 50. Uh, for 12 years or so after that, Timothy is, has always been there to assist Paul, to learn from Paul, and to partner with Paul. The greeting in verse 2 is unique. Uh, if you look through Paul's other letters, uh, grace and peace is, is a very common thing in Paul's greetings. Here he goes, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So, you know, you know some of this, get it down to your bones. Grace speaks of undeserved favor, honor, and acceptance where none of that is earned. Grace here is, is sanctifying. It, 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 it produces something inside of you so you begin to set yourself and you are being set apart for God's intended purpose, resulting from the favor of God sending his own son to the cross, not for those who loved him, but for those who hated him. Peace. Peace is drawn from the Hebrew roots of Paul's life, that old, the Old Testament teachings of shalom, nothing missing, nothing lacking. Everything is fine. Everything works. It's good. Now, the, the Greek word, irene, for peace, at its root, peace is to bind together that which has been torn apart. So Paul says, I'm, gonna, I'm sending you this message, grace and peace. And then he inserts mercy. Now, we know it means compassion. We know it's gentleness. We know it concerns uh, others' pain, misery. Uh, even for those lost in a relationship, they don't know God at all. They don't know Jesus. And, and your mercy can be stirred for that crowd. Mercy precedes grace. Let me say it again. Think about it. Mercy precedes grace. It is the mercy of God that reached out to us, to me, to you. Okay? And then we are able to receive his grace. <clears throat> yes, Paul's reminding Timothy of the work God has started in him already, and also remind Timothy that this is the message 
of grace, mercy, and peace that he carries with him into Ephesus. Now, Paul then enters into a checklist. You know, right up front, you know, normally uh, there's blessings or, you know, greetings or things like that right at the front sometimes. Here, Paul just goes to the checklist. And he says, uh, in a series of exhortations and reminders to Timothy that the, about the problems he's going to face as shepherd of these multiple house churches in Ephesus. Now, we know there were house churches because it was until 280, 283 AD uh, that actually someone had taken a residence, large residence, and had broken out all the interior walls so that you could have a crowd Meet in that home. They found that in Dura Europa, somewhere out in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Okay, all churches up to that time, house churches. Okay, which you know, and you just when you multiplied, you multiplied down the block and across the city. Okay, so here comes this new shepherd to the church in Ephesus. Verse verse three begins, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia. Remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering God's provision, which is by faith. So when Paul had met with the elders of the church of Ephesus, he didn't hike his way from the port of Miletus up into town to meet with them. He called the elders out of the house churches to come down to the port. And he, in his, in Acts chapter 20, he said to them, one of the things he said to them was, there will be false teachers that would rise from within the church, describing them as wolves, speaking perverse things. Whoa. So either he had seen it, identified it, and chose at that time to say, not yet. The Lord, the Lord didn't use Paul to address that. But he, he makes sure that Timothy knows what he's walking into. Now, what was it that Paul was warning Timothy about? So, 100 years ago, 20th century, early 20th century, maybe a little longer than 100 years, uh, evangelical, God-fearing, Jesus-loving Bible scholars and teachers pounced on the history and the writings that had come out about the Gnostic heresy. Okay, Gnostics were those who believed that a higher knowledge was what counted. And if you suppressed the body and you, and you um, made sure that you were absolutely controlled, fresh, new, wonderful spiritual knowledge would pour into your head. And they also, certain Gnostics, also taught the reverse of that. Okay, meaning... If I have this knowledge in my head, then I can do whatever I want to, however vile and immoral with my body, and it doesn't matter because I have secret knowledge in my head. Well, the problem with that is the Gnostic heresy did not rise to any prominence in the Roman Empire for another 25 or 30 years after Timothy, after Paul's execution, actually. So... Yes, there would be a coming heresy that would rise. It wasn't this one. Now, in the 21st century, historians and Bible scholars today say that it appears that Paul sensed and Timothy confronted a renegade Judaism. 
in which elaborate, false genealogies were pursued and constructed for individuals, giving them some sense of heritage that they didn't have before. Out of those genealogies came embroidered tales, elevated stories of angelic encounters, and false legends, as is recorded, for example, in the Book of Jubilees. That's one of the apocryphal writings that pops up in early 2nd century. It's not included in Scripture. Okay? But it talks a lot about that sort of stuff. Okay? The Jewish rabbis had been compiling such mystery stories for centuries. And they put it into a section attached to the Torah called the Haggadah. Okay? Ultimately, that's a springboard from that to more Jewish mysticism that pops up in the Middle East. Okay. But the sizzle of those fables had drawn some of the believers in Christ away from their faith to focus on their own genealogies or family legends, all of which were false. Now, Titus also had to confront such false teachings on the island of Crete, and Paul wrote to him and said uh, that this study of genealogies was, quote, unprofitable and useless, and the myths that arose from that such a focus were not worth talking about. Paul just dismisses them. Now, the empty content of these false teachings drew the faithful to questions about what is true spirituality? I mean, for some people, it really rocked their world. Okay? These teachings failed to further the growth of faith in Christ and his provision by faith of the believers in Ephesus and God's plan of redemption for the lost. So the end goal of the coming confrontation by Timothy against the false teachers is found in verse 5. So Paul says, you're going to have a problem here, but here's how you're going to end it. This is what it's going to look like when you're done. Here's your target. Verse 5 says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. There are others who probably would have said, and this is probably going to split the church. <laughs> you know, or you're going to have to throw some people out, on, you know, etc. There are people who will have to leave because they just won't get it. Or they're going to defy you, etc. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says the goal here is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. He, he is trusting that when Timothy delivers the word, it's going to solve the problem. Now, Timothy was to aim at this end game in his confrontation of those who are spreading a false doctrine in the church. His goal was to spread agape love. This is, this is God's love for the seeming unlovable. From a heart that's set on personal purity, humility, and a good conscience. Nothing tugging at Timothy's memory of wrong motives, wrong dealings, wrong speaking, and a sincere faith. An unmixed faith, a solid faith that did not act one way and believe another. So Paul's goal applied to Timothy, as well as to those Timothy was to confront and correct, was that the outcome in the church would be the restoration of agape love, pure hearts, good consciences, and an unmixed faith. Regardless of the response, Paul tightens up Timothy's thinking on what he is about to walk into. Verses 6 and 7 elaborate on the hoped-for outcome aimed at by some of the false teachers. Okay? For some men, 
It says, quote, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law. Even those, yes, even though they did not understand either what they were saying or the matters about which they would make confident assertions. Now, here again is this aberrant Judaism. <clears throat> those who desire to be known and recognized as teachers of the law of Moses. See, Ephesus was a mixed congregation. There were Jews and Gentiles. Jews had come over believing in the risen Messiah from the synagogues, and they had some training in the law. Gentiles, on the other hand, had been led to the Lord by Holy Spirit. They got it. They, they were in love with Jesus and Holy Spirit. They knew nothing about the law. And then here rises up someone who knows a little bit more than they do. Okay? And it's some of these folks who are saying, well, I've got, I've got this thing out of, the, out of you know, the law. And certainly, there, you know, I think Stephanie was the one last week who asked, was there any other letters? Were there any other you know, uh, passages that were being taught about? Was that, you know, who, who else was sending out letters? And we talked about Peter and his wife had made the journeys through Asia Minor and had left congregations. Mark, Mark's uh, gospel, which was probably directly dictated or taken from Paul, uh, Peter's words, that was available in being pastor about the life of Jesus. But, but by and large, it was the Old Testament that was being used in those house churches. And so here comes these Jews who have an aspiration to become teachers. And so they sort of rise up and they begin to elaborate on the stories out of the Old Testament. <clears throat> okay? And they, they're really attempting to persuade Jew and Gentile to listen to those fables and the myths. They were using the law as a launch point. And in so doing, they just neutered the law because that wasn't the purpose of the law at all. Paul's response is that these teachers did not know what they were talking about and they were making false assertions. Their aspiration for platform, for reputation, for honor, that, that just kicked the gospel to the curb. Verses 8 to 11 are Paul's word to Timothy Reminders, again, of what the law was good for. Now, honestly, there are some, God bless us evangelicals, there are some fundamentalist evangelicals who sort of completely dismiss the law of Moses. They just think, you know, that's over, it's done with Jesus, fulfilled it, forget it. Well, that, Paul says, that's not true. Okay? There's some things that the law is good for. All right? We don't answer to the law because it has been fulfilled in Christ. Grace washed away that whole thing. And righteousness was, our, was given to us. So we don't have to work for it under the law. Amen. This is what Paul says. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinner, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their mothers and fathers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Phew. Knowing that the false teachers were using the law in a spurious way, Paul lays out the reason for his strong warning to Timothy that the aberrant Judaism was based on utter misuse of the law of Moses. 
Paul's oft-repeated teaching on the impact of the law of Moses is stated again. The law is not for the righteous, but for the lost. Not for the followers of Jesus by faith, but for those who have rejected God and his ways. Now, Thomas Lee and Hayne Griffin, Jr., I'm enjoying what they're, they're teaching me about First Timothy. They said this, great quote. Quote, the first, first, the Bible resembles a locked door to restrain individuals from trespassing upon the wrong territory. That's Romans chapter 7, Psalm 19. Okay, second, the law resembles a mirror to reveal sin and lead us to Christ. That's Romans 3 and Galatians 3. Third, the law serves as a rule and a guide to point out the works that please God. That's Romans 13. Now, these problems, they have false teachers here in Ephesus. Quote, they did not know that they needed restraint, a mirror for their sins, or a guide in life. They used the law as a launch pad to turn out spellbinding tales about ancestors and thereby rob the law of its convicting power. Unquote. Paul teaches that the law was to convict and condemn the lives of those who were lawless and rebellious. He paired examples here together against the Ten Commandments. Those who are lawless, in Greek the word is anomoi, okay, are those who do know right from wrong, but choose wrong with open eyes and intent. And I think many of those who were in the streets, rioting in the streets in America, this last year, they fall in that category. They knew better, but they wanted something. They wanted to express something inside themselves. Okay? The lawless have deliberately violated the laws to satisfy their own desires. Second in the list here, there are those who are rebellious and they're outwardly disobedient. Just anybody who says no to them gets an immediate slap in the face. Just bam. Okay? Remember the scripture that rebellion is as witchcraft? In 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Both the lawless and the rebellious are morally adrift, cut loose from any restraint, and the enemy delights in their state. Third, Paul lists the ungodly. The Greek word, it's, a, it's an awful word, okay? It's asabeus. This is not indifference or lapse into sin, but rather an aggressive antagonism that withholds from God what is his right. It describes humanity in full battle array against God. Paul then continues and adds another one. Sinners. There's those who are left with no morality at all. Now these two, the ungodly and the sinners, are those who outwardly disobey and disregard God. Now fifth on the list says the law of God was presented for the unholy. These men and women intentionally trample on God's name and trample underfoot all the decencies of life. Embrace all that stands against the holy and the moral. Sixth, 
Paul lists the profane. This word is also translated polluted. The Greek word is bebelos or bebeloi. Okay? And it speaks of being the opposite of sacred. As in a man who profanes sacred things or desecrates all that God stands for. The man who is bebelos pollutes all that he touches. Seventh, Paul lists some of those who strike and kill mothers and fathers. Both the law of God and the Roman rule made it plain that such would result in death to the striker. Nevertheless, matricide, patricide, they were rife in the day of Paul. Quick way to inheritance. Those who so acted had lost all natural affection and violated both the fifth and sixth commandments. Eighth on the list, Paul adds murderers. Now, we live in a culture that has so nuanced the charge of murder that we just walk right by. 63 million aborted babies without even a shrug. Much less those who are charged. And there are all these degrees of murder and manslaughter. And you can argue your case in court and somehow make it come out so that you can plead your case. You know, you've, you've done it, but you can get away with it, sort of. That closely matches the ancient heathen world. And Jesus enlarged that charge of murder to those who had feelings of anger and hatred against their brother. Our society is filled with that behavior, directed at those who we think have hurt us, have wounded us, have acted against us, who have violated our sensibilities or blocked our aspirations. Here, too, we need the mirror of the law. And then we run in repentance to the cross and pour out our confessions. Receive forgiveness for our murderous intent. Paul continues and lists immoral men. Now in Greek, that's pornoi. And it also includes women who positively pursue sexual sin of all stripes. Fornication is not limited to illicit intercourse, but rather it seems in our world to be an ever-expanding deviance that is being embraced and relabeled as entertainment and practiced publicly and privately. This past week's Grammy Awards put that on display for the whole nation. Tenth, Paul lists homosexuality. This term is only used twice in the New Testament, but both refer to those with actively and who actively initiate sexual relations with others of the same sex. Both references use the word perverts in Greek. In the ancient world, religion and perversion were tightly aligned with same-sex prostitutes serving at various temples. William Barclay said, it is an extraordinary thing that in the non-Christian religions, time and time again, immorality and obscenity flourish under the very protection of religion. Such could be said of those embracing progressive Christianity today. Paul strings out four more examples of entrenched godless choices. 
that have become lifestyles that only, only can be addressed by the law of God. They're kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and any other character practice that stands opposed to the biblical teaching and practice. Now, the kidnapper reference is tied to the slave trade. Now, today, human trafficking would be the modern equivalent, and it's just as vile. In Paul's day, those who had an outward expression of beauty or strength or knowledge, okay, they were often snatched away and sold into slavery. The word in Greek for kidnapper is translated one who seizes the foot. Liars and perjurers are those who, without a hitch, without a ping on their conscience, bend and twist truth, even under oath, so that it results in their personal financial gain, their position, their power, etc. The gutter vernacular is CYA. And when constantly practiced to protect and advance oneself, the result is the swamp that surrounds us in everyday media, everyday politics, everyday entertainment, and everyday education. For shame. That was the swamp that Timothy had to wade through to point out to the false teachers that they were misusing and misapplying the law of God and the word of God. Paul concludes this paragraph with a direct connection to sound teaching. Obviously, that's in contrast to what he's talked about before. Quote, to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Whatever response we get in negative responses for standing opposed to any of the previous lawless, immoral positions, we have here the assurance that our stand is locked solid to the good news of Christ, fulfilling the demands of the law, and thereby setting us free from its bondage and curse. We here are accompanying a wash in grace, mercy, and peace. We are not ignorant of the possible backlash from our culture when we stand on the rock of the word of God. We just know that it is Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and not us. Our responsibility is to live in the opposite spirit of that list above. In fact, Ford family, this week your assignment is to open 1 Timothy chapter 1 and hold up each one of those on that abominable list and ask Holy Spirit how to live in the grace of God so that the opposite comes flowing out of your innermost being. There's not a, this is not a one-off assignment. It, it is something that ought to remind us often to look hard at our lives and let God's grace reveal in us what is to be dealt with. And some might be generational issues passed down and imprinted into us by our forefathers. Sometimes it's memories yet to be dealt with before the Lord. All that is good. Okay? It's hard work. It's sometimes tearful. It's good and results in righteousness. May you all shine as stars in the darkness around you. Let's pray. Lord God, 
will be turned to you and not everyday media, everyday politics, everyday entertainment, everyday education. We want to hear and obey. As your precious sons and daughters, we would serve you and trust in you. Thank you for protection and provision. Thank you for wisdom in the moment and your words in our mouths. There will be those who will radically disagree with us. May they be ones who come to faith in Christ, even as Saul of Tarsus did. In Jesus' name, amen.